0: Today's guest knows a thing or two about bootstrapping. In fact, James Benham has built all of his businesses without having to raise external capital and has still achieved outstanding success. Take SmartBid for example. This construction SaaS company started with nothing and in the end had 103 of the top 140 contractors in the world using their platform. But what I love about James is his pragmatism and intuition. When his mainline competitors had balance sheets in the billions, and there were new startup competitors out there raising $50, 60000000 million war chests, it starts to look a little like a David and Goliath battle. It just goes to show that being a successful entrepreneur goes beyond just executing on a good idea. You also need to have an exit strategy and know when to pull the trigger. James walks us through how to create an ecosystem that supports bootstrap business growth how to navigate the murky waters of competitive relationships, and most importantly, how to recognize when it's time to let someone take over the reins. This is James Benham. James, welcome to the Buy Hill
1: Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Simon.
0: No, my pleasure. I'm uh, I'm really excited to unpack your story a little bit today. But uh, hey, listen, maybe for our guests, could you uh, maybe just tell us a little bit of your background and kind of what led to the business we're about to talk about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a uh, Southern boy from the United States of America. Uh, it's over here in the other hemisphere, the other side from... Uh, Australia. Uh, I, I was born and raised in Louisiana, uh, which is uh, like the, the Quebec of uh, the United States, you know, the French separatists. Uh, I was the uh, uh, child of, a, of an entrepreneur who was the child of an entrepreneur who was the child of an entrepreneur who was the child of an entrepreneur. So my, my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they all had businesses um so uh, and and all my aunts and uncles were in business, so when I was growing up, I just assumed I would go into business. I didn't actually really know what that meant, but uh I just assumed it's what I would do because it was what everybody else did so my uh um my 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 dad it was in the Teflon business, so I grew up walking around manufacturing floors with him he He produced Teflon and shipped it all over the world. in fact, random Australia connection. now, Simon, where are you? I'm in Sydney. You're in Sydney. Ah. Right. Okay. So <laughs> he, took our, he took his very small 1970 twin engine prop plane, Piper Aztecs, my dad's a pilot, mom's a pilot, I'm a pilot, we're all pilots, and he put, ga- he put gas tanks in where the back seats were, flew by himself in 1987 with no GPS to Sydney, Australia from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, crossed, oh the, my pac- God. crossed the Pacific Ocean at 8,000 feet in the air, uh, 51 hours of flying each way, stopped at the islands for gas. And uh, he had customers in Sydney and Brisbane, all up the coast. And so he called on all of his customers, deducted the whole trip.
0: <laughs> that's an amazing story.
1: No GPS. Yeah, just. Uh, uh, yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, uh,
0: <laughs> insane, insane, <laughs> but really exciting, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so that's the my... part of me that's actually scared just hearing it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, right? You just hook you her up. So that's my dad. That's what I grew up with. I, I grew up with this absolute entrepreneur man's man of a dad still alive thankfully he's 84 now it's still he's still he's still always thinking of some next adventure always and um and uh, i went to texas a and i got a degree in accounting uh, texas a&m is the world's finest institute of higher education just letting you know uh huge university, 75,000 students and we call ourselves aggies if you graduate from there and you you always wear a ring every day the rest of your life as long as you live you wear the same ring and um, so I, 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 thought I was going to be a consultant with a, um, because by college I kind of changed and I was like, well, maybe I'll be a consultant with one of the big at the time, big five accounting firms. And I did a couple of internships with Price Coopers and, um, during the summers outside those internships, I was doing software development on the side because I had started writing code, uh, when I was like 11, it was because I, my school taught me and then my dad got me a computer when I was 12 and then. I started a lawn business when I was 12, and I ran that. And then I wrote a software program when I was 13 to manage the invoicing for my lawn business. And then when I was 16, I, I started a business back. This 1995. I taught people how to get on the internet back when it was complicated. And so I I'd always I I'd, I'd had these little side hustles. And uh, in college, I got this side hustle building websites and software for people because the internet was new. You know, it was like only seven, eight years old. And so built websites and software and. After two internships with a big old firm, I went to my dad and I said, Hey man, I'll start a business because, uh, I don't like this working for other people thing. And, uh, and, and he, even though they'd offered me a job and Price Waterhouse had and Arthur Anderson had offered me a job, KPMG had offered me a job. I just like, you know, I need to do, I need to do my own thing. And so, uh, he, he lent me 5,000 bucks and we started JB knowledge with five grand and a hope and a dream. And, uh, you know, within a couple of years, I think he had to lend another sixty-three thousand dollars. So our total end was sixty-eight thousand um, bucks. And uh, we we got started with this thing. I'm still doing twenty-one years later. So I mean, that's that's like the childhood to the beginning. Uh, we we build software still. I can tell you more about that later. But that's the that's the the origin story. Is uh, just love technology almost my whole life and. Love business. Um, grew up around business, not around technology. My parents were Luddites, man. They didn't they didn't we had a single TV with rabbit ears and we had a single phone that was like, like a brrr, brrr,
0: Yeah. <laughs> I can relate to that. I can relate yeah, to that. Yeah, so it's like it even it was, get a color TV.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a different thing. And then we just I started JV Knowledge to build websites and software for anybody and then I, I can tell the rest later if you want.
0: Yeah, very cool, very cool. So so tell me, you know, growing up in a house like that and with a dad who's doing these kind of things. I mean, is there a is there an expectation or a kind of a weight that comes with that, you know, that that you're going to follow in his footsteps and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, I think for a son with a father for sure. I think I think if a, if a, if somebody tells you there's not, they're probably lying. Um you you um it, d- it depends though, right? If you have a good dad, So it depends on if that father loves you and and like, is someone you want to emulate for me, it was, I adored my father. I thought he was the coolest thing ever, man. I mean, this is a guy who three times a year would fly into the remote villages in Mexico and bring doctors and nurses in, um, for free medical work. Right. Like that's, that's who he was. And so he lived out passion for people, helping others, um, flying, building businesses on Saturdays. me. So yeah, did I want to be like him? Hell yes, I did. I thought he was cool. I mean, I was like, well, and I, I actually really wanted to go work for him and uh, he said, James, you will never work for me. And I was like, what? Why? And he's like, no one will ever respect you. They'll just think you're the boss's son. You got to go do your own thing. And so that's why I started the lawn business when I was 12. I started with a loan from my dad. He gave me a $389 loan to buy Aaron's lawnmower, a big orange Aaron's lawnmower, and made me pay it off. He, he made me sign a note. Like, what dad makes their son sign a note? But he wanted me to learn how debt worked and how sucky it was. And so, you know, but he was always doing stuff like that. Everything was always a lesson with him. Like, everything, everything was a lesson. I mean, I, running around the block was a lesson. You know, like everything was a lesson. And so, yeah, I wanted to be like him. Yes, there was... A weight that I put on myself, but not that he put on me. He made it very clear I could go to any school I wanted. He could make it very clear I could go in any profession I wanted. He never, ever—I don't even remember him once—putting pressure on me to do one thing or another. Uh, once I started a business, he applied a lot of pressure to go hustle because he knew he knew what it took. But but up until that point, he was fine with me. You know, originally I was going to be a classical. I was going to be a, a professional classical piano player. And uh, yeah, right. Until I was like sixteen, and so he was fine with that too.
0: Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah. And so, so talk talk to us about. I mean, where you obviously have built a business, and you've gone through a transaction, and and I know we're going to get to that and talk a bit about that. But can can you talk to us about more of the origin of that business and what was that journey like and what what did you do?
1: Yeah, uh, first three years we just built software for anybody. Two thousand four, we landed a really great client in insurance that taught me a lot about insurance it also gave us finally enough free cash flow after 3 years to invest building real product for other things the plan all along was build a service company take the profit from the service company and build a product company that we really wanted to build <laughs> that was always the plan okay always bootstrapping 101 build what you have to so you can build what you want to right that's 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 bootstrapping 101 so um, we uh, we we took we finally landed a good client account in 04 and 06 uh, JB knowledge was building software for eight different industries, but we had this great account in insurance and, um, we, we had an opportunity come in. A friend of my dad's told me that if I modified this bidding software I had built for a different industry, the advertising industry, that it would probably work for construction. And he introduced me to one of his clients who was at a construction company. And they looked at it and they're like, man, that's a great piece of software. If you modified that, we'd buy it from you. And I was like, "Really? Like what modifications?" They gave me like 40 things. And uh it was June of 06 and I went and I went back and and uh, worked with my development team and we we broke this little module of another product out into its own product and then we made the changes they wanted and then I came back to them 6 months later and I said, "Okay, it's done." And they and they thankfully <laughs> I didn't understand how lucky I didn't, I didn't understand how lucky I was that they didn't walk on me in the process, but they said they, they followed through on their commitment. They said, hey, now that you made those changes, let's roll our Dallas office out first. Now, this was January of 07. The big boom's still going on. The housing boom's still going on. Economy's great. Everybody's happy, right? So I go to Dallas. Dallas is the largest construction market. Dallas Fort Worth, 10 million people live there. I don't know if you know that. Huge market, right? There's more construction volume in Dallas Fort Worth than like a third of Australia. I mean, it's, 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 that's just how big that construction market is. It's massive. And so they, um, their, their Dallas office rolled on first and they loved it. And I, because I worked for a lot of ad agencies, had a lot of knowledge about Google organic, uh, paid and organic search listings and in '07, that was pretty new. Google had only been around for a few years really in the advertising space. And so I, um, I worked with a, a good friend of mine from new Orleans, McKenzie. Um, who uh, Mackenzie Lovelace, who had started a search marketing firm really early in the search marketing days, and we just ran the table on Google for like five years, man. No one messed with our keywords. And uh, we were able to rack we were able to rack a bunch of clients up. And it turns out because I was in Dallas, we were super lucky because a bunch of other contractors heard and saw the invitations to bid that our bidding system because that's what Smart Bid was. It was a system that sent out. Invitations to bid and receive the proposals back, and then processed them and awarded the contract. Right, so that was the process. And um, they saw the invitations. They're like, "Man, it's good looking software." So they call this, and so that network effect happened at the same time that we just dominated the Google search rankings. And uh, you know, up and to the right, man.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And. It, uh, so many things going through my head here about, you know, building software and having to adopt it. I mean, I imagine I've had to use new software in the past and there's issues and challenges. A big challenge is getting people to use it and making it stick, right? It's, did, did you, how did you find that sort of part of the journey with your clients?
1: Yeah, so we call that product market fit in software uh, and also adoption. So adoption's the the last and most important step in all software is getting people to actually use the things that they are paying for. Um, Even if you get them to sign the contract, the biggest problem plaguing software as a service companies is underutilization. Because um, And and this was less of a concern when you used to buy software and then only pay for it once. But once you're paying a subscription, every year when that that bill hits, you're like, am I really getting the value out of this? And if you're not using all the software, I mean, how how many of us actually use all of HubSpot? How many of us actually use all of Zendesk? I mean, let's be honest, right? Like, how many of how many of us use all of Mailchimp? I mean, whatever product it is that you use, uh, you underutilize it. The question is how much, and so adoption is always it. We try to make it fun. So, like, my biggest advice for adoption is make it fun, make a game out of it, help your clients enjoy learning about it. We had uh, we were early, early, early to the webinar scene. I mean, the, remember this is. This is like sixteen years ago, so this is believe. <laughs> yeah. it was a while ago, right? I mean, we were early to the webinar scene, we were early to video training, we were early to support portals. All those things matter, but I'll be honest: when you're bootstrapped, you don't have much of a choice but to get in your car and drive around. And I spent a lot of time sitting in cubicles with estimators, identifying. What their biggest pain point was, so I made sure my software did it. Because if you solve a really big pain point, you don't have to worry as much about adoption. Because they will hunt down your product. Like it, you, you, when, if you have a problem with people even logging into your software, you're, you you might not be sol you you might not be solving a big pain point for them. You might be like a nice to have, not a have to have. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, an important distinction too. So, so what was the what was the model like for smart bid? Who, who did you charge? How how did that sort of stuff work?
1: We charged the general contractor. Um, we charged the people sending the bid because we wanted participation, and there were other models that charged the people receiving the bid, and we noticed they had lower participation rates. And so we knew the ultimate goal was high participation in the bid process. So we kept we did a sealed bid system, not an open auction, because a reverse auction doesn't work well either. You know, reverse auction. Everybody thinks a reverse auction. It's like eBay, but flipped where the lowest bid wins are the highest bid. When you have like those public reverse auctions, you end up with like the worst person winnings a lot of the time. So we did a sealed bid system. We did the bidder, the bidder pay the 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 people sending out the invitations pays, and it was totally free for the subcontractor. And then what we did is we did these add-ons for the sub that made their life a lot easier so they came for the free data they came for the invitations and then we then we sold them tooling from other partners and then we made referral deals off of the tooling that we sold them but it was totally optional like they could use our system and never spend a dime with us and be totally fine but we we presented options to them saying hey look if you want to do your takeoffs faster a takeoff is when you count and measure what's on the plan um, we, we would sell them takeoff software. We would sell them project management software. We would sell them printing, and we we were able to drive referral arrangements on those, on all of those. Um, but it 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 was uh, the nice thing is, if you were a sub, you never had to pay us, and that that really drove rates. Right? So we routinely heard from the people that were bidding how much they loved our software because they never got hit up to buy anything. We didn't do ads. We just had these little buttons that say, you know, free takeoff software, and that was it. We didn't we didn't harass them. We didn't call them or email them. It was just subtle in the but you you wouldn't believe just a little button. That could be a major, major source of revenue. Um, You can really monetize your your um, your screen real estate without making it, um, you know, too excessive
0: yeah interesting i i love you know and what i'm hearing here is that you know you've got paying customers that ultimately through just the general process of doing business leads to other paying customers right it's a point of leverage that i think a lot of businesses struggle to find that right which puts a big a big blocker on them scaling so um so that's that's really cool can you talk to me from from sort of building the basic sort of mvps and all the rest of it what what did the journey look like to you know guess in time wise i'm thinking in terms of first customers break even kind of going hey we're we're so, onto something here
1: yeah oh, so 06 to 18 right that was the time frame 12 years from start to sale bootstrapped the whole way used the pro- the profits from our service business to subsidize the losses in the product business broke even a few years in and then we consumed all of our cash growing so we never we never generated a, a profit intentionally we 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 used all of our all of our money to grow um and we were we were up against a bunch of venture capital back companies that were consuming tens of millions of dollars to do the same thing so we were we were very capital efficient i would i would say i don't have really good calculations on exactly how much because back then it was all part of this one thing. And so it was, uh, you know, I I learned later about uh, interdepartmental accounting. And so the early days are tough to tell, but I would say we probably had um, a a, a decent amount of money in it, but but let's say we had about one, one 25th to one 50th of what our venture capital competitors had into the product. So we, we were about 95% more capital efficient um, with, with growing to um, at the end when we sold, we had one thousand one hundred and you know, I, I remember the number the other day. I think it was like 1,143 customers. I think when we sold, and we had about 250,000 companies bidding on projects, and we, we pushed wow. out 10,000 10, projects a week. We had three million downloads a week, uh, and I want to say you know several, a dozen time zones. I can't I can't remember the exact number because we had clients in the UK. We had we had a big 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 set of clients in UK, Dubai, Australia, Hong Kong. And so we were bidding kind of 24-7. So that was – it was like a 12-year cycle. It took a few years to break even. Once we broke even, we just kept it at break even to try and push growth up. And um, the, the, model, the model for us worked. It's, it was still slower than a VC. I, we probably could have done it in six years instead of 12 if we would have used outside capital. But then you, uh, then you, you know, then you have the consequence of having outside capital on your cap table, and you know what that does.
0: Yeah, you dilute, right? That's 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 understandable. Dilute a lot. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um they take a chunk, right? Um, I'm I'm curious. I mean, you've obviously seen both models, right? Using venture capital, and and yeah, clearly you've you've bootstrapped all the businesses that you've you've
1: built. maybe yeah. knowledge, smart bid, smart compliance, terror claim. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So. I'm just curious as to like, how do you, that, that, this idea of bootstrapping and running lean, I mean, what do you think, do you, how important do you think that has been to your own kind of psychology, I guess, of growth and competitiveness and drive and, you know, just ultimately uh, it's impact on your overall success?
1: Incredibly important for me, it's about, um, being really capital efficient and conserving control, right? Everything is about control. And if you if you ask people who are absolutely miserable raising money, it's because they don't have control of their board, they don't have control of their company. They're they you know at the end of the day, they started something that they don't really run. They operate it, right? And so that's the that's always been the thing that I've tried to avoid doing. I also wanted to build a a team of people that I could almost entirely keep together. And so when we sold SmartBid, we kept ninety percent of the staff, maybe ninety three percent. We we kept a lot of the staff with us. Because the buyer was strategic. They didn't want all the staff. And so it, it really allowed us to keep this amazing team together. And I, I've had like the, the top two levels. I have 270 employees today. And the top two levels of my company, my leadership team and my management, they, they've been the same for like over a decade. My leadership team has been the same for 20 years. So I, I really, really, really love the people I get to work with. My te- I can't say enough about my team. And when you really love your team – Um, bootstrapping is a great way to make sure that no one steps in and rips your team apart. Because when you do a deal, when you do terms, you know, you, you can filter out a lot of people that are going to insist that the entire team come or that you come and be an employee. You know, you can, you can, you can leave room for that. Whereas if you have outside capital at the table, they're going to want to, they're going to want to exit and get their money back and, and you're not going to have much of a say. So that's really what it was about for me was conserving cash, was being capital efficient, maintaining control, and and building something that was financially sustainable because like when '08 hit and the economy the economy cratered and look we're headed for that again right now don't, let's not lie to ourselves okay let's not lie to ourselves I I went through '01 I went through '08 I, I went look I've been through this we're we're, we're going down okay. um you you don't want to step in with a you, you don't want to step in with a ton of debt and you know you don't want to step in with a huge negative burn you know because cash gets real scarce. You know, like right now, cash is getting way more scarce because you know everybody lost their their shorts on crypto and then they're losing their shorts in the equity markets, and inflation's biting them all at the same time and so you, you gotta watch that burn, and that's what that's what bootstrapping's about is watching the burn
0: yeah and no, i that makes perfect sense i'm I'm curious as you were growing smart I mean were there any um other competitors or other companies that you saw as major competitors or were you kind of out in clear air doing something completely different?
1: Definitely not clear air. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we, we had a really great idea who our competitors were and one of and one of them ended up buying us, right? So the company that was the reason for our creation ended up being our acquirer. So the, a company called iSquarefoot bought a company called Bidfax and I don't know what year, 05, 06. They shut it down and the customers were so angry they shut it down. They were looking for another solution, and here we were. And that's actually, and then that that company, iSquareFoot, ended up being our acquirer in 2018, 12 years later. And and so it's it, it you know everything is circular. That's why you be careful how you treat your competitors. Be careful about your reputation in your industry because you're uh, oftentimes your competitors may be the ones who end up buying your baby. And uh, you don't you don't want to alienate people who could be uh, future acquirers and so uh, yeah we we had uh, we had vigorous r- stiff competition stepping into the market i knew what our niche would be we were going to be uh, entirely web based which at a, at, a, at a time was was not the case with everybody we were going to be streamlined and easy to use we were going to have powerful software we were going to have an affordable price point and we were going to have connectivity to other vendors so we we connected them with their other technology products we we were the first to market with a mobile app in fact i i want to say we were in the first 10 mobile apps in the iphone app store for construction we were we were we were one of the first 10 companies in construction tech to have an api so we we were very early to market with some of these things that really helped us and that was uh, but we definitely we had competitors the whole time and it got worse and worse and worse you know there were more and more and more competitors as vc money started piling into construct tech
0: yeah yeah cool It's um yeah i imagine you know com- combining all of that with that lean approach i mean was there a little bit of this kind of bunker down where the underdog kind of mindset i mean like y- you must have been up against some pretty big yeah pretty big companies
1: yeah when you're when you're uh okay when your mainline competitors have revenues over 200 million dollars a year and have balance sheets in the billions and then you're then your startup competitors that are starting up to come after you because you've been in the market long enough are going out and raising 10, $20 million rounds and they've raised 50, $60 million. And you're looking at this, these mountains of cash that your competition has. And you you absolutely, you're going, it's a little bit of a David and Goliath situation. You're like, all right, I mean, let's go. I mean, the reality is we had 143 of the top 400 contractors in the world, you know, used our product. I mean, we, we had a decent client base, and they were pretty sticky. Uh, you know, but at at some point, uh, all all things have a logical beginning and an end. And I, I saw the writing on the wall that it was it was time for us to either really get serious and consume all the capital that I had at the time. You know, I would have had to consume all the capital to try and go to the next step and compete. Um, you know, or or go raise money, which I didn't want to do, or or exit. And we had so many yes. offers to exit that it made sense to run a process and, and, and go through the process of exiting. And so we did, we ran a process. I hired a, I hired a, uh, a deal guy who is my MA lawyer, uh, Andrew Sherman from SciFarth. He just a great, great deal guy. He's done 340 transactions. He's written like 24 books on MA, he teaches MA law at Georgetown university. I mean, the guy's just a stud. And he, he ran the process. He, uh, ran the, the legal, but he also ran the process and we had, about a dozen interested parties and we, you know, whittled it down and whittled it down and got our final offers and negotiated and picked the best one. And that's, that's what happened. But, in in May, we closed, I think we closed like May, May 8th, uh, 2018 or May, May 14th. I'll be able to see what the date was, but it was, it was, it was almost exactly four years ago.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah, I, I actually want to come to talking about the deal team and the actual transaction, but but before I do, I mean, you, you, I just want to come back to a comment you made about, you know, investing all the capital. I mean, wh- what I heard in my head, and I like playing a bit of poker with my buddies here, but uh, what I heard was, I'm all in. <laughs> and, and I just wonder, you know, for like running a business like you have and building it the way you have, and over this period of time, I mean, were there, were there any real moments like that? Or, I mean, it sounds like one of them where you, you actually do feel like, hey, I'm, I'm all in here. Like, this is it. Like, if this doesn't work, you know, we, we're going to hit a wall or something bad's going to happen here. I mean, did you have those moments? Can you talk us through that experience? Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, January 14th, 2008, one of the worst days of my life. Um, we, we had a major server outage and, uh, this is back when you had to own and operate your own servers before the cloud. And, um, we had a, we had a big outage. Uh, it, it, it was, it was devastating, um, and we lost a few days of data, and then we had to do all this complicated process to go deal with it. This is a long time ago, right? This is fourteen years ago, but um, it's still it. At the time, everything was on the line. I mean, I mean, uh, but and when I say everything, I mean I. I still had not paid off. Uh, well, no, by that point, I had just paid off my personal credit cards that I had loaded up to to help st- <laughs> with this business. And I mean, but it was still, it was everything. My entire net worth was tied up in this thing. I mean, everything. I mean, uh, ever, everything. I, I, I might have been able to walk away with, um, I'm, I had a, I had a very inexpensive $120,000 house at the time, a uh, little little three-bed, two-bath jobby that my, my wife and I had just brought home our first baby to. And so it was my wife and my newborn baby, and we had no other money. Um, I, we had just gotten health insurance, which was a major deal for us. And, uh, yeah, if we would have, uh, I thought it was going to wipe us out. And so I went outside and started crying. It was terrible. I mean, I, I cause I was, it was everything. It was the business was gonna be gone. The clients were gonna be gone. And my job was gonna be gone. I mean, every, every everything, except I, I didn't have any debt. And that was the big savior is I, I knew at least that they couldn't take my house or my car. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that was about the only thing that wasn't on the line and 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 certainly there were moments in 2013, 14 again where it just got really thin, you know, we were investing everything, we were going all in. Um and uh yeah, it was, it, there there were but that that 08, we got through that 08 deal, didn't lose a single customer. I mean, we called every customer, laid a plan out, took action, we remediated it, we fixed it. I mean, it was like a month of hustle. Um, it was it was really really hard. Um, and, and, um, the, the result of it is we got way better at our job. We got way tougher. We had to let go of somebody who, who, who's, who had, who could caused it. Um, and, you know, I had to rethink my trust level with people and it, it was, it was a major event. And so there were definitely times in the business, uh, early on, definitely the first seven years and then. 12, 13, 14 years in where you're like, man, if this doesn't work out, like you start going on monster.com and dice and indeed and all these job boards. And you're like, okay, where, where would I work if something happened? Um, you know, eventually, you know, eventually we had enough diverse things going on. We had a you know, a healthy enough service business that I knew if this one thing over here didn't work out, I'd still have something to do. But if you have any sense of morals or care about your people at all, you still know that there's people that run that business. That you're responsible for. Uh, so one of, my, one of my general rules is I try to make sure that no one thing generates more revenue than my profit margin. Because if no one thing in my business generates more revenue than my profit margin, then there's no one thing that could immediately take me out or force me to lay off. And, and so that's just a general good bootstrapping rules. If you keep all of your experiments smaller than your margin. If you lose the revenue from that experiment, then you you can you can go to zero margin. Fine, right? We had no dividends that year, whatever. Uh, but you wouldn't have to lay people off. And so I think that's uh, one of those things that I've always tried to to, to avoid. And so while entrepreneurs and bootstrappers may be big risk takers, you certainly have to really um, calculate your risk if you're if you're smart about it. You know.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's an excellent tip. I'm, I'm curious, you know, because I've heard, I've heard and had a number of entrepreneurs on the show who've talked about their story and their struggles. Uh, how important do you think this, this willingness to kind of go all in, how important is that to feeding success for an entrepreneur? I mean, can you do it without, without it?
1: <laughs> uh, uh, um, okay, people do it without doing it because some people get very lucky. And luck plays, luck plays a role in business all the time. Right. Your flight gets delayed and the next flight you're on, you're sitting next to somebody who changes your life because of meeting them. OK, it, it's happened. Um, I've had random chance meetings with people that ended up changing my life. Right. Yep. So you gonna call it luck. You want to call it fate. Um, but people can tell if you're not all in. I mean, how are you going to be a good salesperson? Yeah, I've always believed that the chief executive officer should be the chief evangelizing officer. They should be the chief promotion. I've always believed that the head CEO has got to be the head salesperson. you got to own that. you got to own generating revenue. And, and um, so I've seen people, I've had friends who were very, very, very fortunate in business who, who were not all in because, man, they had some things really break the right way. But they are the exception to the rule. Um, I, I, I believe that um, the number one rule of business, as my dad would say, is survival. You have to survive long enough for lucky things to happen to you. And you cannot survive if you're not all in. I mean, how on earth are you going to knuckle down? You know, so many people get taken out of this by themselves. They, they, they have a confidence issue. They have a commitment issue. They uh, Largely, they govern their life based on fear, right? And, uh, and it drives everything they decide on. And so they'll never really make that, that step whereas like my business partner I've I have i i have I've had two really Sebastian and my my dad Sebastian's my friend from high school I mean Sebastian's all in man this guy this guy's more all in than I am I mean <laughs> he he is and I am a motivated I'm a highly motivated individual and Sebastian you know makes me second guess my commitment sometimes because he's like that I mean cuz you know what we when 911 happened and he he lost his work visa had to go back to Argentina and that's what ended up us starting our office in Argentina Uh, I was like, Hey man, I'll get you a job with a company here. It'll be a great job. And he's like, no, I want to stay with you. This was, this was like five months into the business. He was making nothing. I was making nothing. It was all a hope and a dream, but he like bought in and he was all in. I mean, he just went, yeah, I'm all in. Forget that easy job. I want the hard route. I was like, why? So, so yeah, does it require all in hundred percent? 100%. 100%. We our first employees, they had to bring their own computer to work cuz we couldn't afford to buy computers for them. That's bootstrapping, man. They thought we were running a computer theft scam. I'm not kidding. <laughs> two, two of them, two of them were convinced that all we were doing was just running interviews to steal computers. <laughs> man, oh, that's but, hilarious. But the reality was, we had to ask Sebastian's friend to come sit in the interviews so that Sebastian would have a friend in the interview, so it would look like we only had one person down there in Argentina. I mean, that's—he <laughs> was our buddy Alex, who knows nothing about software. Man, Alex is like Alex is the oh, well, he's amazing, but he—he he knows. He was the
0: strong silent type, in the, and he just—he just sat
1: back like this and asked <laughs> these bullshit questions to them. I mean, it was so funny. But uh, you know, we got these group: Diego, Armand, and Pablo. You know, the, the, my 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 three my three amigos, man. These guys. Yeah. You want to talk you you asked the question, all in? They're all in. I mean all in. They Diego, like two years in two years in. None of us are making any money yet. He comes to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. He said, James, I am working for you until I retire. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs)
0: for those just listening you didn't see james stepping backwards slowly (laughs) (laughs)
1: exactly i'm like what do i what do you say to that man but that's is is that all in yeah that's all in was diego rewarded for that all in hell yes you know and that's the that's the deal man i mean you got to have them you got to be all in too much too much equivocating i still see too much of this man i got two situations of people that i'm mentoring right now where a partner Refuses to let go of another job to be fully in the business. Oh man! And, yeah. and that, and it is you know they're still holding on to that that ju- it's that crutch, and they are they, what they don't understand is they're literally never going to be successful if they don't you know if they don't let go of that. Like if you if you're going to be all in, be all if you're going to be an employee, that's great, man. The world needs employees, man. My company we have 270 teammates, right? I mean, it, it, that but be all in on that. Like that's, that's, that's my problem with side hustles, man. Yeah, You can have them. It is hard to pull off a side hustle and, and one of them not, one of them not win. Right. I mean, like you can have them, right? Like you can have, like, we, I have employees who are in a band and they make money playing on the weekends in a band. Cool, dude. That's a good side hustle, man. Because it's more, it's fun. It's exciting. It's relaxing. You know, but you, you're you're in a you're in a tech business and you run a real estate venture on the side. Hell, you're not going to be committed to either one. You're just doing both a disservice.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I get I get the band thing too because it's a passion. It's a passion thing. The money's probably actually yeah. not important. It's the experience. But it's 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 funny because even in our team and we we've got a a team based in the Philippines and and they're amazing, just amazing people but yep. we've occasionally brought in new people and they, and, they, and it's quite common in the Philippines for people to have side hustles. You know, they're always doing little jobs for people and, you know, a few extra bucks here and there. And, you know, our message has always been to them, look, we get it. We can't stop you doing that stuff. And, and we don't, we're not trying to stop you doing it, it's, it from the or, or stop you earning money. But, you know, if you took that little bit of discretionary effort and you applied it to what you're doing in our business and you apply it to do a course, do something that furthers yourself, You'll give up earning a few bucks today, but you might end up earning a few more bucks per hour or per year, you know, a lot more over your life. You you ultimately become far more valuable in the long term. And we would just encourage you to choose the long-term path that gives you better benefits because and, and we'll support you by the way. We'll pay for courses, we'll we'll do stuff for you. But like, but being focused and and as we've been saying, kind of going all in on what you're doing, just it's so critical to 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 their success and our success as a company
1: hundred percent. I mean, I had the same problem even a few years ago. Everything was going great. business is successful, smart bid's growing, JB knowledge is growing, smart compliance is off the ground, generating a profit, no debt, no investors. and i I had started a content marketing strategy to drive customers to SmartBid that involved me doing a lot of public speaking. I spoke at almost five hundred conferences and i I was, I mean, it was, it, it became a big thing. I started keynoting like a lot of conferences, thousand person, 1200 people, conferences, 1500 people, you know, I mean, you know, you, you start, then you start getting double and triple booked I, peak year, 2016. I had 53 speaking engagements. I mean, it yeah. was, <laughs> and, and I realized that this thing that was actually originally there to market the product became a thing on its own and it turned into a distraction from me being all in on the product thing, even though I started it to feed the product thing leads. And it, by the way, did it feed leads to the product? Hell yes, it did. But my business partner, Sebastian, had to come to me. He had to hold me accountable. He's like, look, I'm not sure this is about leads anymore. And and it was like it, it, and, and he was he was right. And I had to, I had to I had to back off. I backed way off because it, you know, I had I I had experienced success and there's nothing more like there is nothing more addicting than standing up in front of a room of a thousand people and having them just, you know, love your speech. It's just it's an yeah. incredible feeling. And then getting leads and, you know, you get paid yeah. to speak to. I mean, there's 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 a lot of really good things, but at the end of the day, it was not optimal for the best outcome for the whole team. Um, I had reached the point of diminishing returns a while back, and so he reined me back in like a good partner does. So being all in also doesn't mean burning yourself out on one thing. You might actually go too far on that thing and 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 be out of out of being all in again <laughs> it's, it's yeah, yeah
0: yeah yeah absolutely yeah we're humans right we, we we're ultimately we're flawed flawed beings but um it's i'm curious and I'm, i could talk to you all day about this sort of stuff but it's um sort of cognizant of your time and i and i'd love to just pivot if we can a little bit to, towards your exit yeah. you, so you mentioned to me one of the things i picked up was you, you you had a lawyer who's this this guy's the stud right he's the guy who's yeah. he is the man guy. and i'm I'm just curious. It's, one of the things we often hear, I think that that sort of contributes to success is having a good deal team around them. Um, and, and it sounds like you had the man, not just a man. <laughs> so, how important was this guy? You know, how critical was he to your success?
1: He was great. I mean, he didn't help me build the product, but he helped me sell it. You know, so so was he critical to building SmartBid? No. Was he was he critical in me executing a proper transaction that? allowed me to have the terms that allowed me to keep almost my whole team intact and, uh, move the company forward. And yes, a hundred percent. Um, I've had, uh, I had a tough time. I still have a tough time with investment bankers. Um, and, and so it, it um, on, only because only because of, you know, So I, I've met quite a few that I really like, um, I mean, I really like, and I, I really trust, but, uh, I've had, I've had a difficult time, um, and, and at the time I had a really particularly difficult time with, with some IBs. And so I said, you know, I really just need to have a lawyer. Who's also my deal guy, because so much of the work in MNA transaction is, is legal work. I mean, so much of it is legal work, um, that the IBs after, right after some basic terms and negotiated, they bring the legal team in immediately, you know, so you're going to pay those legal fees either way. And so, um, so yeah, it was, it was critical to him understanding and then him, um, Setting expectations, and then through the negotiation process, keeping the terms really clear. I don't think it was magical that somehow I ended up with a term sheet that four years later I love, and I want you to hear me say, it. I I love the terms we had, and and I have a lot of friends who exited that two or three or four years later, they're like you know swimming in a pool of regret, and uh, not this guy, because that because what 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 you know it was papered so well. And the terms are so right. And the buyer was the right fit. And everything was teed up. And that's not an accident. Right? It's not an accident.
0: Yeah. Out of interest, I mean, we we often see deals, and I don't want to go into anything. It might be confidential here. But in terms of deals, like we often see them structured in a way that, you know, the consideration for the business is often paid in in either one or more buckets. And, and those buckets tend to be, you know, cash up front, maybe a deferred component and potentially an earnout um no. did, did you have a spray what 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 was your deal like
1: seven times annual recurring revenue so it was, t- it was seven times gross revenue all up front no earn out Yeah.
0: no earn out no deferred wow congratulations man that's that's awesome that's a great yeah. deal yeah um what what was the uh so, so you've got You've got the deal guy. He's helping you structure all this. How long did the deal take? Well, actually, let me go back to like I'm interested in how long it took from the point of engaging him to actually getting paid. But when in this process did you start thinking it's it's time to sell? Did you did you did you build it with the view of selling it in the end?
1: No, would not. No, I was firmly convinced I would never sell this business until I joined yeah. EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, and I met a Aussie named Rob Nixon, and Rob. Uh, Rob's from Bris Vegas, and uh, he uh, he he told me a story about selling a cow that uh, I I told on one of my other podcasts. But uh, he he, uh, he he really helped me understand that there's a time to sell everything, and I I really he and, and a lot of my form form really turned my mind around on being open to this, and I'm glad they did because there's a time for everything, and sometimes you can hold things too long. And we had reached this crazy inflection point where we were either going to have to keep really growing and really step it up on capital, or or exit, and so, thankfully recognized that point. Um, then I then I engaged uh, with Andrew, and then and we went out and got this done. But it but it um, yeah. So but we we had had a lot of inbound interest. I mean, a lot. We had a lot of you know every week serious serious parties contacting us, and so I, I just kicked them down the road. And then once I once I engaged Andrew, then we reengaged all of them and started talking again.
0: Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So so there's a bit of a shift there, and it sounds like a lot of people. I mean, most people start the business thinking. Hey, we just got to make it to the next year or the next whatever, right? Survival, yeah, as you yeah, said before, is the most yeah. important thing. But it's um, and and so, how long did the actual sale process take? I mean, from the moment where you sort of said, "Okay, let's go, let's let's do this seriously."
1: Yeah, yeah. To, to, to when we closed, maybe a year. I mean, from the from when we said, you know, hey, Andrew, come to College Station, let's talk and let's do this, to when we actually got the wire transfer, it was like a year. Um, it takes a while. I'm amazed when people come to me and say that they're they're going to go hire a firm and they think they can get everything closed in three months. I'm like, what planet are you living on? Like, you know, the the process to get all the proposals will take two or three months. And then, you know, first off, it's going to take you a month to prepare everything. Then you got to put a data room together. Then you got to then you got to go to market. Then you got to get your letters of intent. And then you got to you know then you roll on down to to negotiating. And and so like we started in like June, we had a letter of intent signed by like December. And then we did five months of due diligence. <laughs> I mean, it was, it took a while, man. I mean, it, it great acquire too. Like I, I, I love the, 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 folks that acquired me, um, you know, I square foot construct connect, which is owned by Roper. Um, Dave Conway was the CEO, man. Dave was a Dave, Dave did everything he said he was going to do. I mean, it was, it was, it was really remarkable. I mean, it was, it was, it was remarkable. Cause I'd heard so many nightmares from other people who'd sold different companies to different other companies, I had I and and I was like, well, maybe that'll happen to us. Maybe it won't. I hope it doesn't. But uh, you know, we we got we got very we got very fortunate. But so that took a year, and then it took you know it take again people don't talk. It took a co- it takes a couple years after the transaction to kind of you know hand this baby off you can't just like hand the keys over you're not selling a car you know yeah, <laughs> so yeah yeah there was there, there was a time afterwards that where where we had to you know help them transition but uh you know there was a there was a separate contract for that you
0: know yeah yeah that makes yeah. sense it's it's interesting because we always say to our clients like you've got to allow for 12 months you know i've had deals that have taken longer i've had deals that have gone quicker but at the end of the day yeah. give, give yourself time right like these things you, you we're not trying to just run a short race here this is a one-time deal we sell it it's gone so let's let's yeah. do it properly but do
1: it right it's and, and it's the biggest sale of your life so yeah, treat yeah. it like that <laughs>
0: yeah yeah, well, yeah yeah it's funny because I, I was chatting to a, a prospective client the other day and they said 12 months they said oh well, we spoke to you know somebody who does you know like a competitor of ours apparently but they said oh they they said they'd have us up and sold in three months and i and i actually laughed and went oh look sorry like you know look if you if you Honestly, believe that that's possible, and that's what you want. Then you you should take that option. But um, you know, I just anyone who promises that is is mad. Don't know how.
1: Don't know how they do it.
0: No, exactly right. And 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 the flip side of it too, James. I've had I've had a number of buyers these who sit on the other side. Usually, you know, guys with egos. You know, a bit of private equity, a bit of you know people who've been around in fairness to them, they've done a lot of deals, but. When buyers now sit across me and they go, "Hey, we've done this before, man. We'll have this d- wrapped up in six weeks," and that makes me laugh as well. Because yeah, every time I hear that, it ends up taking four months.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's no way because you get a, you get you get your outside law firm in, then you get your outside accounting firm in, then you got to do your IT due diligence, right? And then I mean, yeah. that alone's going to take a month for them to crawl through. Yeah, then you got to do tax exposure. I mean, come on, man! Like it's, it's there's too there's too much there's too much to button up. If you're doing transactions that fast. You must be leaving a huge contingency. Like the only way I can even see doing something that fast is if you leave like seventy-five percent of the money contingent on, <laughs> on on all the stuff you're gonna find when you're done. I, I don't I don't see how you do it. Yeah.
0: No. I, yeah. I agree. I mean, look, and, and you know what? It's funny how often in in a DD. One of the lawyers happens to have their... This is my 12-month holiday. It's been booked for 12 year, twelve months. You know, I'm on holidays for the next two weeks, or somebody has a baby, or something's going on. It's like, really? We're in the middle of a deal here. Like, <laughs> So, anyway. So, mate, um, I'm super appreciative. I'm, I'm sort of mindful of time here. I could, could honestly talk to you about this stuff all day, and I've really enjoyed hearing what happened with SmartBeat. I mean, you've had an enormous... certainly we won't say overnight success because there's no such thing I think but it's yeah yeah Yeah. that's right um but but a very successful exit and and it's clearly led on to some other stuff so what are you doing today what's where's your main focus today
1: well uh, I got my pilot's license when I was in due diligence because I turned it over to my partner and let him do it and so I do a lot of flying um a lot of flying I've got 1,300 hours of flying now and seven ratings so I uh I, so what am I doing next? I'm doing a lot of flying, but uh, we we we've grown the core business. The really exciting thing is we were at about 200 employees at the time uh, four years ago. We're at 270 now, um, and we've we took JB Knowledge and we grew that core software outsourcing business where we work for insurance carriers, brokers, third-party administrators. We grew that core business of JB Knowledge. We took Smart Compliance and we we quintupled the size of it. So we 4X'd Smart Compliance in four years. Then we took and we built a new product called Terra, which is um, a Terra claim, Terra policy, Terra. So it's a it's a it's an insurance software company that builds claims and policy management software. And we have our first three customers on that right now. And I'm I'm like what the the beautiful thing about getting to build a business is you get to go through like this amazing new stuff again, like stuff that you thought you would never get to do again, like signing the first client, signing the second client, signing the third client. I'm in I'm in the middle of that right now. Uh, you know, we have, we have hundreds of clients on smart compliance and we've got, you know, we've got great longstanding clients at JB Knowledge. Terraclaim Claim is in that new bit, little fresh six pound, eight ounce baby phase, you know, where it's really exciting. And so that's what we're doing. So honestly, rinse and repeat, everything we're doing right now is insurance. So everything we're doing is insure tech. We still have construction clients, but they use our insurance software. So all of our people, that's what we're doing. We're still bootstrapped, still doing our thing, still building software. We still sell our time and our product. We still use profit from the you know, the time business to build product. I mean, you know, we we we, 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 and we we're very very careful to do all this stuff ethically and do the right thing. Right, our value number one at JB Knowledge is do the right thing, even when no one's looking. Exhibit integrity and honesty in all you do. And so that's you know we let our five now six. We just added a we just add a new core value uh, this year after seven years. Um, you know we we're big about sticking to our values. And and building business the way that we build business, uh, which is carefully but aggressively, um, and uh, trying to innovate now the insurance space. And um, it's been really cool to see the products take off. Like it, it's it's you know they're 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 off the ground now. Like we've achieved we we went past rotation speed, the plane's flying, and and we're we're doing it again.
0: Yeah, cool. That's, that sounds amazing. And by the way, I'm liking their flying analogies here. We I am literally a few days away from watching Top Gun 2, So I'm I'm mentioning you're doing <laughs> some pretty cool stuff here. <laughs> yeah, we are.
1: I I, I, have, I have a lot of fun flying. Most I just got my seaplane rating in January and I, I follow a bunch of Aussie seaplane pilots uh and and so it, it's it's a lot it's a lot of fun to to fly airplanes and uh there's a lot of lessons to take back to business from it.
0: Yeah, cool. James, I've made thank you again for coming on the show and, and being so generous with your time and your story. And, and I know there'll be a lot of listeners who, who are just taking a huge amount of value out of all this. Um, before we wrap up, I mean, are you, are you okay for people to reach out and connect with you? And, and where, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, so here's, here's the deal go to jamesbenham.com. Uh, I have a new book coming out this fall called Be Your Own VC. It's 10, 10 bootstrapping principles. So you can go check that out. It's called Be Your Own VC. Ten bootstrapping principles. Uh, that's coming out this fall. It's everything's at jamesbenham.com. You can also email me. Here's this. We can keep it really simple. James at jbknowledge.com. That's Juliet Bravo. jbknowledge.com. So you can email me there, or go to jamesbenham.com. You can go to LinkedIn and hit me up. Uh, ask me any questions. Uh, certainly, I advise a lot of startups. I, I'm an investor too, and I invest in in technology startups uh, and real estate. So I I love, I love all of that. Love meeting new people. I love speaking at conferences. So they're always welcome to hit me up. Go to the website and then look for the uh, the book to come out later this year and about uh, about how to bootstrap, man.
0: That's awesome. And as we always say on the show, if you do reach out to James, please just put a little note in there. And let him know maybe that you heard him uh, on the Buy Gross Hell podcast, so he has a little bit of context as to uh, to why you're reaching out. So awesome, thanks, James. Thanks for your time.
1: Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.